And now, the cleanest hour in podcasting with your host, Ralph Peterson. This is the Housekeepers Podcast. And just like that, Mr. Daryl Hicks, we're live on the Housekeepers Podcast. Thank you so much for coming on and spending some time with me. I'm so grateful. I'm grateful to be here. I've kind of followed you and kind of wondered from afar, how do I get on this list? And (laughs) then I get this invite from you and change my world. Oh, I love it. I'm such a big fan. I think we've actually kind of been, you know, in each other's world for, I mean, 10 years, a long time. At least. A long time. And, uh, you know, like they say, great minds think alike. And, you know, so you're doing something that is very important and that's just, you know, communicating. And I love the the broad range of guests that you have. And it's really, it covers the waterfront. And so I want to applaud you for what you do and what you do for the business. Thank you so much. I got to tell you, the pleasure is all mine. I could not be, I could not be in the better seat. I mean, I'm meeting guys like you and all around the world. I have people all over the world wanting to be on the show and talk housekeeping and cleaning business. And it's amazing. It's just simply amazing. I wouldn't want it any other way. I wouldn't want to be in any other industry. Well, that's funny. I mean, that you say that, but you know, I have one time I was teaching this management course and it was all environmental services, housekeeping type people. And I asked, how many of you got into the business? You know, were you called or did the business choose you or did you choose the job? And they said, pretty much I was chosen for the job because I showed up every day. I did a good job. I didn't complain. And so they moved up in the ranks of management. And I said, okay, now I'm going to reverse this. How many of you would want your child to follow in your footsteps and not one person raised their hand? And that's a commentary on our business is, you know, we do it because, you know, Kind of like the group said, the job chose us because of our, you know, showing up for work every day. But, you know, as far as getting the children involved, and that should tell you something about, you know, how positive we are about what we do and how we do it and how we save lives because we do it well. You know, what's funny is I think I meet a lot of people who grew up and their mom owned a cleaning company or their dad owned a cleaning company. And so then they started their own cleaning company, right? So I've seen it both ways. I've seen the same thing you're saying, like people like, I never want my kid to be in this industry. And listen, the really reason why I would say that I wouldn't want my kid in this industry is just because how challenging it is. Yeah. You know, that's the only reason, not because it's not a good profession, right? And there's a lot of professions I wouldn't want my kid to be in because they're not, you know, but just because they're challenging, you know, they're hard, you know, I mean, cleaning, is one thing getting paid to get to clean. <laughs> something completely different. Yeah. And, you know, what I think the contract management companies, Sodexo and Aramark and Crothall, and they do a good job of is going to the career days at colleges and universities and talking to these young, soon to be graduates. And you want to work at Verizon just because you get a free phone, you know go into the hospital cleaning side of things. 
and where you can be your own department director. You're important because you sit on the committee with the infection control folks. And, you know, so they get jazzed up about the opportunities, but, you know, you can start off making $50,000 a year and, you know, wind up running your own department and you can run it as your own small business. You know, you're the CEO of that company and you got to provide a quality product. You got customer service, you got training, education, all those things that, you know, would appeal to younger people. And we should in this business be there at those same career days and recruiting people that right out of college with a business acumen or something like that would qualify them to sit in your chair. I am million percent agree. And that's literally how I got into this business was I got back into this business. I got into this business because my first job was in housekeeping in high school. <laughs> when I got back into it seriously, it was the lore of being in charge. It was the management opportunity, which by the way, there's tons of management opportunities out there in EVS, in all kinds of industries, whether you right. want, you know, stadiums, office buildings, banks, schools, nursing homes, hospitals, airports. I mean, the leadership opportunities are amazing right now. Amazing. And when I was first recruited into this business, I was about 31 years old and it was back during the early 80s and recession. And I'd been laid off from my job and I had a guy from our church that worked for Service Master, and he recruited me into the business because what he said to me is, there'll always be a need for cleaning. And, you know, otherwise we'd be chin deep and waste and filth. And, you know, so there's always going to be a job for those who know why they do what they do, not just how to do it, but know why they do it. So that's a great segue. Let's go all the way back. Where did you grow up? I grew up all over. My dad was in the army. And so we were army brats and we lived in probably 10 different places and before I got to high school. And so we were in Germany, we we're in Texas, Oklahoma, Colorado. Was, you, was your father a career army? Must have been. Yes, he was. Yeah. Uh, what, what was he, he, pardon? he did? What did he do? What was his MOS? He was a medical technician, but he in World War II, he was in the Navy and was a corpsman. Oh, and uh, so then wherever he got, you know, is during the Korean War, they enlisted in the Army and wound up being in a mass unit over in Korea. But, you know, that's so medical is kind of inbred in me. Yeah. But, you know, it took a while for me to, to realize that that was really my calling. I've got my mother was a nurse and I've got a sister that turned out to be a good nurse. So it's kind of in our DNA. That is fantastic. So where did you go to high school then? That's where you finally settled down? Yeah, moved in with my grandparents. It was a small town, you know, like 3,500 people. So High school, our graduating class had 120 in it. And, you know, so small town. And that's where I met my wife. And we married right out of high school. We just celebrated our 53rd anniversary. But, wow. Uh, so that's when we moved to the big city. And, you know. Where did you go to high school? What town? Fredericktown, Missouri. Fredericktown, it's uh, Missouri. south of St. Louis, about 100 miles. But. Anyway, my grandfather was a chief of police, so I kind of grew up with that, and I did spend a night in jail once, but 
We won't go into those circumstances. Who hasn't? Who hasn't? <laughs> Skinny dipping in the city pool at midnight. Wow. They put you in jail for that? <laughs> and they called my grandfather. And he said, it'd do him good to spend the night in jail. Oh, no. It looks like it did you good. Well, those are life lessons. And, uh, you know, I've told my kids about that. And they just, you know, they don't get it all. But growing up in a small town, you didn't have a whole lot of entertainment. So, you know, you had to make your own. Yeah. So what is your wife's name? Carol. Carol. So you met Carol in high school. Yep. We did in high school for a couple of years. Went to the proms. They were all, all that together. And then after high school, got married. And, you know, it's been a real journey for us. And, you know, so we're got three sons and from, you know, living in two of them live down in the Atlanta area and one's here in the St. Louis area, but three solid young men. Very impressive. So what did you do for work coming out of high school? Well, I got into land surveying and did that, wound up moving from that into construction inspection, you know, roads and sewers and all that stuff and airports. And like I said, then the recession hit in the late 70s, early 80s. And I was out of work for a few months with, you know, three kids and a wife to support. So that's how I got into this business and spent about 34 years doing what I love to do rather than what I had to do. So I have a, a friend who kind of has a similar story where he was, well, I think he was a younger guy, but he was just looking for work, just anything to get, you had to prove you were looking for work for unemployment purposes. Right, right. And he went in and this guy wouldn't let him leave. He said, no, 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 I can use you. Go grab that mop over there. And it was for service master. I'll be. Yeah. And now he's a nursing home administrator. So he's worked his way. I think that's a good career ladder, you know, start off and, you know, the CEO that knows custodian's name, I think is the kind of leader I would follow anywhere. And that's what I had for the last 16 years is CEO, president of the hospital that, you know, is a 500 bed hospital. So about 7,000 employees, he was very visible. It was just the, the culture of the hospital. And he would say that, you know, in new employee orientation, I'd be there and he would say, you know, housekeeping is everyone's job, not just housekeeping department's job. It's everyone's job. And he said, if I'm walking down the hallway and I see someone dropped a Kleenex on the floor, I'll pick it up. And he said, if I'll bend over and pick it up, then I don't want to see you step over it. And so that was the culture. And it made our jobs much better because it started at the top of the organization all the way down. And, you know, it was that sense of, you know, we're all in this together. And I know that that's not the culture everywhere, but I enjoyed it. And it made life so much better and easier whenever you, you know, you have your staff that feels like, you know, they're appreciated. So what was your, you know, what that reminds me of, by the way, that reminds me of Disney. You probably already know this, but all the Disney employees are first trained on housekeeping. They're first told that is their first job is to make sure that the place is always looking spick and span because we're selling dreams here, right? Yeah, that's number one on their list is show. You know, the show, what people see and, you know, 
once you put on that Disney costume, you have to be in character the whole time until you take that costume off, but you can never be out of character. Show is number one. Well, actually, safety is number one, and then show is next. But, you know, safety is if the place isn't safe, then we've got huge problems. So safety is their job number one for everyone. But then show is next on that list. So when you first got recruited into Service Master, for what were you doing? What was the jobs? Were you working in healthcare? Were you working what? I was in healthcare. and. Service Master does a lot of different things, right? Don't they clean a lot of different back areas? Then, back then, they had been in the hospital contract management business for probably 10 years and were growing. And, you know, one of the, the things that drew me to the company was their four corporate goals. And one was to honor God in all that we do. And second is to help people grow and develop and to grow profitably and So those were the values that, you know, because I got into it because it was service and, you know, it aligned with my values in life. And so service to others is what we do. And, you know, the the old Janice, you know, the the term janitor comes from Janice, who was a Roman god. And he was the keeper of the keys. And you see the school customers walking around with that ring of keys. And, you know, they're the keeper of the keys because they are the ones that get into every one of those areas. And so, you know, that service mind is essential quality in what we do. And it's really service to others. And without us, you know, it would be a totally different world. And it's a scary world out there. You know, we're still dealing with COVID and, you know, these different variants and hospitals are getting full again and number of cases are starting to go back up and it's the variants and what have you that we're concerned about. But, you know, what I know is that we have hundreds of thousands of workers uh, devoted to disinfecting and disinfecting our hospitals. And, you know, these environmental services personnel are among those most likely to be exposed to the virus and the most essential in combating it. So it's that combination of they're on the front lines and most likely to be exposed, but also in charge of combating it. And if they do their jobs well, you know, it doesn't get passed on to the next unsuspecting patient. No, I appreciate that, especially we've always been and we've always kind of felt it that we're the unsung heroes, right? Like there's rare to find somebody as important as the housekeeper, in my (laughs) opinion, in any industry. I really, really believe that. But I want to back up a little bit because I think that there's something here that you just said that was, I think is overlooked right now. And it's almost overlooked intentionally. Like it's something that you can throw away. And that is you found a company that aligned with your own values and that what's important to you. And I find that I too, and I'm researching housekeeping, cleaning companies, janitorial companies all the time. You know, I'm a business strategist, so I'm always trying to find what makes people, what makes companies better than others. You know, why is this company, why do people choose this company over this company and and vice versa? And, you know, what are their strengths? What are the weaknesses? And anytime I come across a company and you can reverse engineer this, So instead of looking at 
the top line where you go, all right, who is the who makes the most revenue, right? So forget you can do it that way. So forget that part. Go down to the bottom line and go, who's focused most on culture and values, core values as an organization? And then go from there, find who's doing that. And you go up and you find that they are the same companies. The companies yes. at the top are the companies that are truly paying attention to core values. They're aligning. It's not just speak. It's not just you know, something that you put on the wall. This is our mission statement. This right. Is, it's not something that is a throwaway. Oh, we have to have. It's what they live and breathe. And so could you, I don't, I just don't want to gloss over it because I think what you just said is exactly why I think many companies right now are struggling in every industry with getting staff. And it's that whole idea of what are your core values and do they align with, with your employees? And that's why, you know, in this business, you know, when stagnant or low wages, you know, before, you know, when three quarters of the workers in environmental services, three quarters of the workers are below the poverty line, the national poverty line. So how do you recruit people into those jobs? And, you know, it's got to be some purpose higher than just, you know, what I say is that too often we think about you know, housekeepers as as a job when we ought to be thinking of it as a career. And for it to be a career, there has to be purpose in, you know, they have to get the why of what they do. And too often we teach them the how to use the green chemical on this and the pink chemical on that. And here's how you do it. And we'll see you at 430, you know. And so there's very little training and, and that shows you how the importance that we place on developing those people is, you know, it's just too easy to recruit them. And, you know, I'm concerned about the person that was stuffing hamburgers in a drive through you know, restaurant last week, and now they're going to clean the OR this week. <laughs> and what has prepared them for that? You know, they spend eight hours with the guy that works in the OR and, you know, they show them the how to's and what have you. But no one has really explained the why of what they do. And when you get the why, then the how-tos make much more sense. I agree. And I think one of the, one of the, it's an easy why in long-term care. As a healthcare, well, I think in healthcare, long-term care, there, yeah, because in long-term care, and I was just having this conversation with someone today, you can be having your worst day at work in long-term care. And it's not usually, you know, there are some certainly some circumstances that are warranted, but it's not nearly as bad as the person who you're caring for because they're dealing with end-of-life care. Right. The people who live in long-term care facilities are dying. They are living their last days. Now I ask you, how important is a clean environment? <laughs> how, is in, how important is it that you show up? How important is it that you be mindful and polite? and kind and forgiving, right? Yeah. It's the greatest why, I think, that it's like cleaning churches. Why do you want to clean churches? Because it's godly, right? It's people are going there to worship. People are going there to see the awe and brightness of the Lord, not to get religious on you, but you can't do that in a dirty church, <laughs> right? It's a little harder anyway. Well, it's no accident that so many EVS workers just feel invisible to the rest of the hospital. And, you know, they're working around professionals, and yet we don't expect them to be the professionals. 
And so I think that, you know, they're devalued, ignored, relegated to the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. And, you know, so how do we integrate them into, you know, the patient care team? And, you know, the way that, you know, Studer, if you've ever studied the Studer, but, you know, it's that power of the conversation. So the housekeeper comes into the room and the nurse is in there taking care of the patient. And and she says, oh, this is Daryl. He's been cleaning our unit here for 10 years. And, you know, he does such a fantastic job. I know you don't like to clean toilets at home, but he cleans over 50 toilets a day. (laughs) Isn't that great? You know, and so, you know, it's that feeling of, you know, Daryl's here, but he's also part of a care team here. And without him, you know, we would be in literally in deep doo doo. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was working at a hospital, oh, I don't know, about 10 years ago now, but time just every time I come up with a new example, I'm thinking, I'm always like, wait, that was like three years ago. Wait, that was longer. It was five years. Oh my God, that was 10 years ago. Time is going by. <laughs> like, holy moly. But I was working at a hospital and the EVS team was having a real challenge with HCAP scores. You know what HCAP scores? It's how the patients, when they go home, they get a little survey. For those who don't know what HCAP scores are, hospitals send surveys to their patients. And you're to grade various aspects to include the cleanliness. How was the EVS team? How was your cleaning? And they were getting terrible EVS scores. And... Most, when you go and you actually look at the forms, the patient was saying N-A, meaning it said, how was your housekeeping? And they said N-A. What the heck does N-A mean? N-A means they never saw the EVS person. They, you know, because your average length of stay is only a couple of days. And when, if you're in the hospital for a couple of days, you're either in ICU and you're in and out of it, or you're there because you have need constant rehab or x-rays or whatever. Right, so you're not in your room all the day. And if you are in your room, you're sleeping. My point is, you don't even see the EVS person. You know, the housekeeper comes in, the cleaner comes in, cleans your room, and we don't get credit because you didn't see us. And, you know, we tried so many different things. Providing news, you know, then we, we're bringing newspapers in. Well, they're going to deliver it by the EVS department. Newspapers are still not getting any play. You know, like we put stickers on the toilet paper. We would do these little <laughs> Sandy wraps on the toilet lids and, you know, tent cards on the, t- on the overbed tables. It wasn't until we started to add the housekeeper's name to the whiteboard. Bingo. In the patient room. And you know what's on the whiteboard in the patient room? Doctor's name, nurse's name, aide's name. Always little instructions, you know, save your urine. You know what I mean? <laughs> Some medical instruction. And then once we put the housekeeper's name, everything changed for us. Not only did the age cap scores go up, but our relationship started getting better. The patient would see the housekeeper and they go, hi, Debbie. They know her name because it's on the board. I mean, everybody came out winners to your point. All of a sudden, we're part of the team. We're being recognized, even though we're just putting our name on the board. And Ralph, you you hit on something there that... and. You know, whenever I see poor, I don't want to say poor housekeeping, but when I go into a public restroom and I see this black mop mark around the baseboard, I don't blame the guy that mops the restrooms. I blame his boss. And, you know, I think that too often we see this 
less than adequate service. But if the manager, the leader was involved in those patient rooms and if they rounded on those patients, have you seen, you know, point to the whiteboard and says, have you seen Debbie today? Did she come in? Did she, you know, what did she do a good job? You know, so the thing is that, you know, with elderly patient population hospitals, you know, the hospital I was in probably average age was 70 plus years old. And, you know, they could have slept through the whole cleaning, but their granddaughter granddaughter sat there because they're, you know, watching over grandma, making sure she's taken care of. And she saw the housekeeper, but it's the patient that gets the survey. And, you know, so there's some things that you can do, but, you know, what part of our conversation that we have with patients is that when we got done, we would say, is the room clean for you? And, you know, if you said, well, I'm done, I'll see you tomorrow or something like that, and you exit the room, they would look at that spot on the wall, the blood or BM, they don't know what it is, it's something brownish red. And if you said goodbye, have a good day, they say, well, they didn't clean the room again today because that spot's still there. So when you ask, is the room clean for you? Well, if you could get that spot, oh, I didn't see that. You go over and wipe it, now the room is clean. So, and the other thing I would say about that is, you know, hospitals spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on, you know, new MRIs and new technology, and they wonder how they can get better results and HCAP results and better infection prevention. And I think they overlook that, you know, if you spent more on staffing so that you could clean those rooms twice a day instead of once a day, you know, how would that impact your patient satisfaction scores and your infection, you know, HAI results? But, you know, we spend it on, you know, UV lights, you know, and, you know, <laughs> and it's like, you know, our hospital was looking at UV at one time and it got all the way down to where we were ready to pull the trigger. So my boss gets, you know, a committee of people together and the infection prevention doctor is there. And after he hears this whole reason why we were going to get it, because the hospital down the road got one and the hospital, you know, across town got one. So we got to have one. And, you know, the doctor looked at me and said, Daryl, he said, we don't have an HAI problem here. And that's largely because of what you and your staff do. And everyone's eyes turned to me and I said, thank you. And he said, uh, my fear is if we get a UV light in here, he said, your staff will slack off because we've got the robot here to do what we were supposed to be doing. So, you know, my fear is they'll take their foot off the gas pedal. And that I is a really, that is a really, really, tr- that is a, that is a real fear. Yeah. Real fear. You know what the average wage for dishwashers is in a restaurant? I heard a restaurant down in Texas, you know, he was talking about this staffing shortage and he said, you know, to get dishwasher in his restaurant, he was going to have to pay $40,000 a year. And he said, I'll close the doors before I pay a dishwasher $40,000 a year. Right there, that right. So you just kind of, you identified what I was going to say, which is the challenge. 
and the issue and the challenge to overcome at the same time. And it's twofold. It's one where the reason that it's so hard to find a dishwasher is because it's a crappy job. Yeah. <laughs> because it sucks. And it doesn't suck. By the way, it doesn't suck because of the actual work of the job. Washing dishes is not challenging. It's not, you know, I mean, it's labor intensive. It's hot. It's steaming water. You get wet. Sure. There's a potential you get cut with a knife. Okay. But it's no different than lugging concrete forms. Yeah. It's not harder than pouring cement. It's not harder than, you know, carrying blocks and bricks. But the reason that they have such a struggle with employing somebody in that position is because of the way the position is viewed. It's viewed as a very less, anybody can do it, don't need any special education, a monkey could do this job, and they treat it like that. And so if you're asking somebody not to take the job, you're asking somebody to lessen their position in life. Exactly. You mean, consider it like that. You're like, hey, I need you to take a position where everybody's going to look down on you. When they speak your name and what you do, they're going to do it as if they have something sour in their mouth. <laughs> Ew, Scotty's a dishwasher. Ah. And then we wonder why nobody wants to take the job. And so the only solution that anybody's coming up with is we're going to have to pay $40,000 a year to a dishwasher. And as soon as they say it in their own brain, they're like, "That's we- I'd rather be out of business yep. than to spend that money. Well, you know, here's the thing. If you change the culture, if you treated the dishwasher like you do the bartender, if they were equal in pay, I'm, of course, making the case for housekeeping and nurses, of course, right? I'm using, a, I'm just using a little example here, but that's what it is in housekeeping. Housekeeping is not hard work. Housekeeping is not, you're asking, because people look down on it, everybody's like, all right, so a nurse's aide who gets two weeks of schooling will make $5 more than a housekeeper. You don't mind taking that job, do you? Do I not work hard as a housekeeper? Yeah, you do, but you're taking a job that is a monkey can do. No, you know what? A monkey can't do it, all right? (laughs) And neither can the nurse's aide, by the way. They can't pick up after themselves. Here's something I'll read to you, Ralph. It says, airplane mechanics and parachute packers are recognized for their critical work. As each tightened bolt, each untangled line represents crisis averted and lives saved. We should afford the same respect to our EDS workers and take steps to support their efforts on the front line of infection prevention. million percent. I only hope, I only hope, and I don't know if it's going to happen, but I really do hope that what, you know, right now we're under two different things that are really big stressors for us. One is very short-staffed and across, you know, all kinds of industries. That's number one. So short-staffed. And then number two is COVID with infection control. And I'm hoping that a spotlight is being shown bright enough on EVS teams all over the country, all over the world, quite frankly, and how important they are. And so we get two things. One, we get the valued respect that we deserve because of how critical we are to all infrastructures, as you just pointed out, but also that we get an increase in pay because we are just as valuable. We're just as valuable as nurses' aides. We're, you know, we're not, 
I can't go save your life, but I can prevent <laughs> disease from getting to you. Exactly. And so I believe that, you know, along those same lines is that, you know, we in this business, I think that we need to raise the bar when it comes to professionalism. And that's through, I think we need a certification program. You know, Europe has got, you know, their those who work in healthcare and cleaning have to be certified to a certain level. And like the example I gave you earlier of, you know, the person is working the drive-through last week and now they're going to clean in the OR and was prepared them for that. I believe that we need to have a certification program that is universally accepted and people, you know, at the higher levels of CFOs and what have you says, well, what if I train them and certify them and then they leave? And my response to that is, what if you don't and they stay? Of course. <laughs> I have a guest who's coming up from France who's going to be on the show, I think, in the middle of August. And she is from Italy. And she right now, apparently Italy doesn't have, what she was saying, and again, I'm going to have her on the show, but she was saying Italy doesn't really have a certification program for EBS. And she really, she's spearheading, she's trying to create one. Just trying to create one. And I, I was fine. Say it again. I think it's time. And then whenever we raise the professionalism, I think that it's going to change the employees' outlook that uh, they're working around professionals, respiratory therapists, and certified nurses and registered nurses. And, you know, we have to look like professionals. We have to dress that way. If we're going to be accepted as pre professionals, the cart can't look like it does. Like, you know, we have to, to look professional, but also the education, the certification is necessary so that we raise their esteem and their recognition as being a professional working amongst professionals. Agreed. So let's, let's talk about this book. Oh. Infection Prevention for Dummies by the great Daryl <laughs> Hicks. How did you come to write a book? How does that happen? Well, it was 2006, and the first iteration of the book was Infection Control for Dummies. It was out for about four years, and then, you know, the infection preventionists got their hackles up, and so they said it should be infection prevention. We're either prevent them than try to control them. So we updated the book, and that was 2010, but back in 2006... I was the president of IEHA, the International Executive Housekeepers Association, and someone at Wiley's who publishes all the dummies books had contacted IEHA about this idea. And so they knew kind of my, my passion was for infection prevention. And it's a personal story, but my daughter-in-law at the time was 37 years old and the mother of three of my grandchildren. And she was little tiny thing and she was very athletic and she was actually training for an iron woman competition or there isn't really an iron woman competition there's an iron man and women have to compete along with men <laughs> at least back then and so she was spending a lot of time in a workout facility with a personal trainer lifting weights and what have you and she got an infection in this part of her hand right here and within eight weeks she was dead what is an MRSA infection that she got. I was going to ask if it was MRSA, yeah. 
became a bloodstream infection and went to her heart and left my son with three kids. The youngest was 16 months. That is terrible. So my message is, hospitals and we have MRSA can be cultured from everything in our society, even beach sand. And so, you know, it's an opportunistic organism, but M and MRSA means methicillin and methicillin is kind of the end of the line for antibiotics. So when we get these organisms that are resistant to vancomycin, which is another end of the line antibiotic and methicillin, then we're entering the pre-penicillin days when people died of a scratch on their leg that they got. And my daughter-in-law was just lifting weights and what have you and, and, you know, got an open opening in her skin and uh, wound up being a fatality and it's changed our, our family forever. But, you know, it's one of those things that is a passion that I have is we've got to do better at cleaning and disinfection if we're going to save lives. Because, you know, with these organisms living on surfaces for 56 or more days, if they're undisturbed, and there are no antibiotics then that will kill them, then cleaning disinfection may be the only thing that saves mankind. That is a tragic, tragic story. And I've heard a lot of them. You know, they, I've heard about it happening to kids in, in football uniforms, you know, then the, the whole idea of ringworm being very prevalent and those situations as well as MRSA. And it's, I, you know, if there's one place I've never cleaned it's a gym you know i have been the one who wipes down my equipment when you go in there but i've always wiped it down after i used it <laughs> no you should wipe it down before the last person that used it did so you know that's why i say is that we you know when it comes to patient care equipment that is kind of what I call the orphans in the hospital because no one really owns them and no one really is responsible. They say it's everyone's job to wipe that off. Well, if it's everyone's job, then it's no one's job. And so, you know, the what we say, you know, in when we were developing our own patient equipment cleaning program is that, you know, you should, it's just like if someone hands you a gun, do you assume it's loaded or do you just pull the trigger to see if it's loaded? <laughs> you know, you should assume that it's loaded and you treat it like it's a loaded gun. We should be doing that with surfaces and we should be cleaning them, disinfecting them before we use them because it's like a loaded gun. You know, that's what happened to my daughter-in-law. So what is the best, I know you wrote about it in your book, but just to highlight it, what is the best practice for infection prevention? I think for too long, we've depended on uh, toxic disinfectants to do the job that proper cleaning would prevent a lot of what we, you know, my philosophy is we ought to be removing the little boogers instead of trying to kill them. And, you know, Mr. Hicks, are you about to make a case for soap and water? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm glad you brought it up because why is it we have one standard for hand hygiene and it's soap and water, clean water, and we use soap and we use friction and we scrub for 20 seconds and then we rinse it and then we dry it. 
but when it comes to surfaces, we dump this toxic chemical on it and we spray and pray is what I call it. And you, I, see, it, you see it in the restaurants, you see it everywhere. You see it in the hospitals, spray and wipe. I call it spray and pray. So I do a, I host a, a webinar on CDC guidelines for infection control in nursing homes and healthcare settings. And when I do it, I'm always curious, you know, because we have to go through the chemical list and what contact time is and kill ratios and all that. And I always ask and I always get the same answer. I always say, I always ask the question, if you happen to find yourself in a crime scene and perhaps there has to be some cleanup, what do most criminals use to clean up the crime scene? And everybody's always says, bleach, bleach, bleach. It's not, it's dish soap. It's dish soap. And you know what? Like seven out of 10, get away with it because dish soap works. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that if we have the right, you know, ultra denier microfiber and water, you know, we've done the test there at the hospital. We had a conference room table and we just used water and a micro denier. We did the ATP test before and after. And, you know, before it was like 700. And after we just use the right friction and motion, you know, you have to exert a little bit. And I was doing one of these seminars like you were doing, Ralph. And I said, you got to apply some elbow grease. And this young lady in the back of the room says, where do I find that? I said, I'll introduce you to my grandmother. But uh, <laughs> So let me let me ask you, because I... So here's another piece of it. So you keep saying microfiber and the CDC does recommend microfiber, but I don't know why. I have no idea why microfiber is getting all the attention. Can you tell me why microfiber is better than a paper towel? Yes. Uh, paper towels, most of, many of the disinfectants, the vast majority of disinfectants that we use are quaternary ammonium compounds. Mm -hmm. And so cotton and uh, cellulose and paper towels, you know, I see people spray and wipe with a paper towel. The cellulose in the paper towel will bind the active ingredients in that quat, just like a cotton, say a terry cloth cotton, will bind those active ingredients and not release them to the surface. So microfiber is one of those things that catches the soil and, you know, just think about terry cloth, you know, the loops and terry cloth are better than a t-shirt, you know, when it comes to cleaning. And it's because of those loops that hold the moisture, hold the soil. And so the microfiber will catch and not release until it's laundered. And you should be using a microfiber that's able to be laundered according to the CDC guidelines if you're in healthcare. There's only one company that I know of that makes a microfiber that can be laundered and dried at higher temperatures. And actually, you can add chlorine to the wash formula so you can kill CDC or CDC, <laughs> C. diff. You know, we used to get these blue huck towels from the OR because they would come in a sterile pack and they would open up the sterile pack and they might only use one, but they'd have four left. So they would give them to us. And so it was free cleaning cloth. <laughs> and I was in one of my staff meetings one month and someone raised their hand and said, we're not using, we're, we're not eating in, in the cafeteria and the sandwich line. I said, why? I said, I was in there yesterday and the lady, the 
customer in front of me got a sandwich. They cut it in half and then they wiped it with a blue towel. And she said, I could just picture that I wiped a toilet with that <laughs> yesterday. And now they're cleaning the sandwich knife with it. And so from that point on, I gave all the blue towels to dietary. I laundered them for them, but we switched to microfiber and we never went back to the blue towels because of that cross-contamination. If it's not a reality, you know, then it's in people's minds, especially those that worked in housekeeping that cleaned toilets with them the day before. Yeah, it's definitely not a reality. <laughs> With peace and love, right? I mean, uh, washing machines do a really good job disinfecting, especially in healthcare, because we raise the pH so high and nothing can yeah. live in the high concentration of pH. So, And then the, the high temperatures of drying, too. And yeah, the, the, dry, the drying is so fickle that, thank God, we don't rely on hot water. We couldn't get temps to save our no. life consistently. No. So it's really about the pH. But the only – in peace, I'm respectfully – pushing back a little bit okay, on the difference between microfiber and paper towel. And I went to the extreme of paper towel because it seems so obvious that microfiber or anything would be more effective than a paper towel. It would seem that obvious. But the truth is, if we go back to washing our hands and it requires neither a paper towel or a microfiber rag, really it only requires soap and water and friction. In that same vein, I would argue that a paper towel is the same as a cotton towel, is the same as a microfiber, in that its only job is to act as a vehicle for the soap and water or the disinfectant to go to the surface. Does that make sense? And before, you say, before, you, before you say no, have you ever heard of a bleach wipe? Pardon? Have you ever heard of a bleach wipe? Yeah. What's a bleach wipe? It's, it's a paper cool. towel. But what I say about the paper <laughs> towel, about the T-shirt, about the retired washcloth or the microfiber, they're all delivery tools yeah. for the disinfectant or exactly. for the cleaner. That's yeah. all they are. The magic isn't in what? A million percent. That was my point. It's not in the fiber. But it, it goes yeah. back to the elbow grease and, you know, you have to do more than just a cursory wipe of it. You have to apply some pressure and remove it but you know to me that is the first step and cdc and epa both say that disinfectant should only be applied to pre-cleaned surfaces right unfortunately what we're doing is we're cleaning with it we're doing one step we're doing one step <coughs> and truthfully we don't have the time we don't have the staffing to do the two step i remember gosh i don't even know uh, uh, 2006 i think when the CDC D, there, there was a, it was around 2006, maybe it was 2007, but all of the chemical companies that had a kill ratio, all the chemicals that had a kill claim on C. diff got decertified. For one reason or another, I don't know if C. diff got a little stronger or whatever, but all of a sudden it was very hard to find a chemical that could do two things. One, because C. diff is a spore. And I know we're losing all the listeners. We're getting a little nerdy. But all, <laughs> see, this is how much you need to know when you work in housekeeping. C. diff is a spore. And so the cleaning chemical that we had wasn't able to break open the spores. And so all the C. diff rooms, we had to clean, we had to go through clean with a power degreaser to break open the spores of C. diff. And then we had to go back through again with a disinfectant to kill the C. diff. 
And I got to tell you, I didn't find one housekeeper who enjoyed it. Not one housekeeper that did not complain. That was like, if the power degreaser is powerful enough to break open the spore, how can the thing still live? And I'm like, I don't have that answer. All right. That's a Here's what I say about that, Ralph. And uh, I get what you're saying, but, you know, I think that we need to get rid of the term clean when visibly soiled. So is it visibly soiled to the lady that forgot her glasses today? Yeah, right. Um, you know, who is it visibly soiled to? Is it the patient laying there in the bed and they see the spot on the wall that the housekeeper doesn't? You know, I think we need to get rid of the term pre-clean when visibly soiled because it, when it comes to C. diff, it only takes fecal matter the size of the head of a pen to be infective. So who is looking for pinhead-sized pieces of fecal matter in that patient overbed table or on the bed rail? We need to get rid of the term when visibly soiled and just pre-clean everything because these organisms that we're combating, you know, they need to be pre-cleaned and then the disinfectant because disinfectants are, if you read the label, it says in the presence of 5% soil. And I talked to a disinfectant manufacturer. I said, so how visible is 5%? And she said, if I take a white paper towel and I wet it and I wipe this surface and it turns up any shade other than white, it's greater than 5%. So you're already challenging the active ingredients in the disinfectant by not removing the soil. And the soil is insulating the surface and those pathogens from the disinfectant because they're happy living there. And then we get into biofilm. And that is a whole nother story about what lives in this biofilm is the viruses, the bacteria, they live there very happily. And if we don't disrupt that biofilm through some friction, you know, like we're talking about, then, you know, four hours after you leave the room, then the surface is repopulated with what lives in the biofilm. And biofilm is one of those things that we don't study enough, but biofilm can actually grow in a disinfectant bottle. So disinfectants do not kill it. We have to disrupt it. We have to remove it. And so that's part of this friction and microfiber. Microfiber actually acts like a scraper on that surface. If you certainly, a, the, yeah, it's certainly a stronger pressure. Yeah. 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 So we have to disrupt that biofilm. We have to do a better job of soil removal and then apply the disinfectants and they will be much more effective than uh, just spray and pray. And this is exactly why I couldn't wait to get you on the show. <laughs> exactly. So smart, so thoughtful, clearly been doing this for a long time. And it's just a joy talking with you. I got to thank you so much for being on the show and taking the time out to be with me. I just so appreciate you. Well, Ralph, you're doing, the, you're doing a lot of the heavy lifting by just introducing your listeners, viewers to uh, new concepts and new ideas. And we have to get better at what we do and not get so comfortable in our knowledge that, you know, just man, I'm, if you don't mind, I'm going to in closing read this to you. But it's about knowledge. And it says, you know, there are three categories of knowledge. Things you know that you know, the known unknowns, which is the things you know that you don't know, and the unknown unknowns, things that you don't know that you don't know.
<laughs> Those are the dangerous ones. And so we need to move into the things that we know that we know and away from, you know, and you have to first come to the realization there are things that you know that you don't know, but to go happily through life, no, not caring about the things that you don't know about. But you do that with your guest, and I'm just privileged to be one of them. Yeah, well, I, I can't tell you. There are so many takeaways from today's show. That First of all, I did not know about Janice and where the word janitor came from. That is fantastic. I, I absolutely love having that information. I'm so happy that you shared the story about your daughter-in-law and how important infection control Infection prevention, pardon me. <laughs> I almost slipped up. Infection prevention is, especially in those common places where people are, you know, from all walks of life, using the same equipment, visiting the same rooms, touching the same doorknobs, whatever. You know, that's, it's a really powerful story that you shared. Good message. And one last thing while ago, but this is the last, last thing. This is the last, I'm last gonna, thing. You got it. Yeah. I want your listeners your viewers to know that one educated engaged you know given the right amount of time to do her job and the right tools to do it with will prevent more infections than a room full of doctors can cure million percent very very well said make sure you look up daryl hicks buy his book it is so super worth it it's such a great Reminder into great tips, great tricks on how to approach infection prevention. And I love that you changed the word from control to prevention. When I first got into healthcare, we did infection control. Everything was about control. We did hazard, hazmat control forms and all that stuff and never prevention. So it was really a smart turn of phrase there. So infection prevention for dummies by Daryl Hicks. Thank you so much for being on the show. If you enjoyed the show, and I'm sure you did, please make sure you like and share and subscribe and comment and tell everyone about it. And that's it for, from Daryl Hicks and myself. Thank you all so much. So long. That's it. The Housekeepers Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning into today's show. Keep in mind, the best way to ensure that you never miss an episode of the Housekeepers Podcast is by subscribing to the show and following us on social media. For those of you who are more visually stimulated, you can always watch us record the show live each week on LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. In fact, we post all of our videos on YouTube, so make sure you are subscribing to our YouTube channel. If you love the show and you want to help us out, please consider writing a review and sharing the show with all your friends and families and colleagues. And if you are looking for more information about today's guest, all of their contact information and the links to their websites are in the show's notes. That's it. Until next time, this has been the cleanest hour in podcasting. I am Ralph Peterson, and I'll see you later.